for Sue Starkey, who Sue is uh, from here in Oxford and fellow in English at Kirsten Hilda's uh, College. Uh, thank you very much for that, Sue. We move on now to our fourth uh, presentation in this session on the uh, international uh, reception of uh, the right. Um, and uh, we're going to have uh, a paper uh, from uh, Idoya Murga Castro, uh, who joins us from uh, the Complutense University uh, in Madrid. And she's going to be speaking on the Spanish reception of the Rite of Spring, Ballet, Music, Fine Arts, 1913 to 33. Thank you very much. Good afternoon. Thank you for the introduction and for. Um, Mike and Claire O'Morna for accepting my paper proposal for this wonderful conference. Um, in this paper, I would like to analyze the reception of the Rite of Spring in Spain from 1913 onwards. Although a complete stage production of the original ballet was never shown in Spain, it was considered a revolutionary total work of art by artists and intellectuals during the so-called Silver Age, a period of splendor and renewal in the arts that ended with the outbreak of the Spanish Civil War in 1936. In this presentation, I will discuss how the right came to Spain thanks to its author's involvement in other productions performed during the Ballet Russe's Spanish tours between 1916 and 1927. I will also attempt to show how this type of Russian ballet production inspired and engendered its equivalent in the Spanish context. The Ballet Russe's Rite of Spring was never performed in Spain as a complete ballet, and only the keenest intellects who strove to keep abreast of what was happening abroad were even aware of its existence. However, the situation changed considerably after Diaghilev's company visited Spain for the first time in 1916, taking advantage of the nation's neutral position during the First World War. Seven years after the first premiere, the Ballet Russe presented works like Prince Igor, Les Ilfites, Cleopatra, Carnaval, The Firebird, Le Spectre de la Rose, Zadko, Petrushka, Tamar, Midnight Sun, Kikiomora. From the outset, the Russian company's contributions were outstanding, revealing a new concept of ballet in which choreography interacted with music, literature, and certain costumes designs drawn from modernism and the avant-garde. At the time, Spain was still clinging to a 19th century concept of theater and ballet with conventional decor and small groups dancing during the intermission. Only an exceptional few, such as the art theaters of Adria Gual in Barcelona and Gregorio Martinez Sierra in Madrid, were striving to bring about a renewal of the performing arts. Among the ballets performed during that first tour, the ones featuring Igor Stravinsky's music made the strongest impression on the Spanish public and press. The critic Enrique Romain, in the pages of the journal Atenea, had already drawn attention to the Russian composer and his Petrushka and Firebird, mentioning the ride as something magnificent and excellent, although he was not familiar with the score. Quote, it seems that newer and more furiously dissonant forms are being cultivated, he wrote. Romain, would not have long to wait before the opportunity of hearing that mother music came his way, for Stravinsky visited Spain with the ballet troupe for the first time in 1916, and a reception was held in his, in his honor at the Ritz Hotel in Madrid on 11th June. After the dinner, Miguel Salvador, the president of the National Society of Music, hosted a party at his home, where the Russian composer, together with the musician Manuel de Falla, and Ernest Ansermet, conductor of the Ballet Russes, publicly unveiled the fourth-hand piano transcription of the Rite of Spring, the same arrangement that Stravinsky had played with Debussy in June 1912. Stravinsky also presented more recent scores, such as the music hall pieces on which he was working during his stay in Madrid. Among the people who heard this version were Diaghilev, Adolf Born, Leonid Massin, and Spanish composers such as Adolfo Salazar and Conrado del Campo, the writer and theatre director Cipriano Rivas Cherif, the critic and librettist Guillermo Fernández Shaw, and the music critic Joaquín Fesser. Many of them wrote various articles for the press explaining the goals of the Russian company in dance, music and the fine arts. 
Manuel de Falla was the most vocal proponent of the merits of Stravinsky's work at the time. Quote, I am perfectly aware that his name is known to all who are familiar with the European artistic movement in Madrid, and most of them admire him. But what of anonymous multitude that comprises what we call the general public? Do they realize the importance of the fact that an artist of such lofty eminence as Stravinsky has come to renew our stale musical atmosphere with the breeze bracing or subtle but unfailingly fresh and clean of his heart? The author of Petrushka wants to blaze new trails or at least clear old roads or their overgrowth and the triumph of that resounding the latch called the Rite of Spring has proven him right. End of quote. From the moment of Spain's first contact with the musician, the red became an emblem of that modern, almost revolutionary music, identified with the most daring experiences of avant-garde Europe. One of Falla's disciples, Adolfo Salazar, who as I have mentioned attended that piano recital, wrote that all he could, set, all he could sense was a mad and overwhelming rhythm, an all-powerful rhythmic gale that put pay to all other circumstances required by the music. End of quote. Critics compared Stravinsky's first visit to Spain with the flash that passed through the hieratic halls of the Spanish theatre, the after-effects of which would remain etched in its memory, suggesting the need to instigate a reform and search for other unknown words in art. The following year, Diaghilev's company returned to Spain with a programme similar to that offered in 1916. After concluding their November performances in Madrid, they made it a paying trip by travelling on to Barcelona and an additional 15 cities in northern, eastern and southern Spain. It is quite interesting to analyse the chosen repertoire for those tours. Although the Paris season had unveiled artistic milestones like Picasso's Parade, featuring the most avant-garde work designed by a Spanish painter up to that time, Diaghilev chose to continue in the, in the same aesthetic vein at the first season, offering audiences a similar repertoire of modern, yet not overly audacious ballet. Instead of the right, the season programs repeated try-and-true pieces by Stravinsky, such as the Firebird and Petrushka. Instead of Parade, ballets like Narcisse, Tamar and Papillon were performed. Only an article in La Esfera, entitled Cubism in the Theatre, and written by Antonio González de Linares, addressed the arrival of this avant-garde proposal on the stage. The 1921 season featured only two works related to the right. The first was the new version of Prince Igor, with the old designs by Nicolas Rerich and choreography by Nassim. The second was the soiree in honour of the King and Queen of Spain, when Stravinsky, during his third visit to Spain, conducted the orchestra in a new performance of Petrushka at the Royal Theatre in Madrid. The musician did not return to Spain until 1924, when he embarked on a tour of Barcelona and Madrid which for him marked the beginning of his career as executant of his own works. The following year, he returned to Barcelona and conducted a festival of three concerts featuring his own music. It was not until 25 March 1928 that the Rite of Spring was performed as a symphonic suit at the Liceo Theatre in Barcelona, conducted by Stravinsky himself and broadcast by a Catalan radio station. Stravinsky received a lengthy ovation from the audience, although the reactions of the press were mixed. For instance, Z, probably Urbano Fernandez Zani, a journalist, said that the Rite of Spring would be the most musical score of all time if music only consisted in cerebral products with harmonic and contrapuntal formulas, whereas since music needs emotion, feelings, ideology and revitalizing breath, Stravinsky's work should be viewed with caution. Others, like Adolfo Salazar, persisted in their belligerent demands for a complete and integral performance of the Rite, which they regarded as Stravinsky's magnus opus. Thanks to the development of radio in Spain, Salazar's desire was partly fulfilled when in March 1930, Unión Radio in Madrid broadcast a portion of the right. This was the final boost, boost for the score, which the following month was released on five records by the Columbia Graphophone Company in San Sebastian. In November, the complete music was definitely broadcast on Unión Radio. Still revered as a visionary composer in avant-garde circles in Madrid, Stravinsky's story of a soldier was performed as a puppet show at the Residencia de Estudiantes. There, in June 1931, the music was played with an orchestra conducted by Ernesto Halfter and a set design 
but the painters Daniel Vázquez Díaz, Eva Agerholm, Rafael Vázquez Agerholm, José Caballero, and Juan Manuel Díaz Caneja, and the writer and theatre director Cipriano Rivas Cherif. However, it was not until 1932, on the occasion of Stravinsky's 50th birthday, that Spanish artists and intellectuals were able to organize a performance of the full score of the Rite of Spring at the Calderón Theatre in Madrid, conducted by Enrique Fernández Arbós, probably the best-known Spanish orchestra conductor at the time. The program was rounded out with Debussy's Iberia and Mamère Loire and Daphne's Echloé by Ravel. The Russian composer made such a profound and lasting impression that in the spring of 1933, a new Stravinsky festival was created. The Rite of Spring was played as part of a program that included the Firebird and Petrushka, the two works with which the Ballet Russe had toured Spain. Stravinsky's prominence of the Spanish cultural scene was also enhanced when he accepted an invitation from the Sociedad de Cursos y Conferencias, the Society of Courses and Lectures, to come to Madrid on November. There, in the auditorium of the Residencia de Estudiantes, he gave several concerts and talks in which he explained his ideas and conception of music. Stravinsky's contributions were gradually gaining acceptance. The ride was broadcast by Union Radio, his works were included in several concerts, and the Ballet Russes de Monte Carlo, which visited Spain in the spring of 1935, performed Diaghilev's classic repertoire. Stravinsky's Petrushka and Rarik's Prince Igor were once again featured in the programs, together with Three Cornered Hat, Sherzad, Jardin Public, and Le Bal, among others. Apart from the reception that Stravinsky's ride had in Spanish cultural circles, I would like to discuss how the Russian avant-garde ballets of Diaghilev's company became a model for Spanish dance in the interwar period. The ballet formula, based on a combination of popular traditions, legends and nation rites, with the avant-garde elements in the score, set design and choreography, landed in Spain in 1916 and served as a prototype for a new kind of Spanish ballet. Some Spanish critics and, artist, and artists identified these elements as soon as the Russian company gave its first performance in 1916. Of particular interest in this respect is the opinion expressed by Cipriano Rivas Cherif, who was destined to play a crucial role in the development of Spanish ballet shortly afterwards. Quote, this preponderance of Russian music may be the principal reason why all the ballets performed up to this point possess that impassioned quality which characterizes not only Russian music, by Russian, but Russian art in general. We await the premiere of Petrushka as an opportunity to discuss Stravinsky in particular, whose firebird has revealed him to be the founder of a kind of Russian music, which is perhaps less typical than that of Borodin or Rimsky, but certainly, and perhaps for that very reason, more universal." Unquote. The Ballet Russes had used ancient Russian rites for the Rite of Spring, the traditional puppet show in Petrushka, a children's tale for the firebird, and the popular custom of peasant marriage for Lenos. On their arrival in Spain, the members of the company were also captivated by the country's picturesque atmosphere, legacy of romanticism and folklore. Stravinsky's autobiography describes his first experience of Spain during the 1916 tour, struck by much that he saw directly across the frontier, the smell of frying oil, Life in full swing after midnight, a banda playing Paso Doble. Leonid Massin also recalled similar moments spent discovering flamenco and Spanish art history at the Prado Museum, studying the paintings of Rivera, Murillo, Zurbarán, El Greco, and Velázquez. The members of the company took in many of these sites on their tours. The Alhambra, Catholic traditions, the Hispano-Muslim heritage, and Spanish folklore were all new to them. During the Ballet Russe sojourn in Spain in the spring of 1921, Diaghilev and Stravinsky decided to travel to Seville during the week before Easter, mingling with the crowds at the religious processions. Following these visits, Spanish costumes and traditions became a source of inspiration for Diaghilev's later commissions, such as Las Meninas, 1916 production with costumes by José María Cert, and especially two ballets designed by Pablo Picasso, which bore little resemblance to his provocative parade, Manuel de Fallas, The Three-Cornered Hat, in 1919, and Cuadro Flamenco, in 1921. 
Picasso was the artist that best incarnated the fascination with Spanish stereotypes interpreted with the modern language, and his vision spilled over into works inspired by the Goyesque atmosphere of Pedro de Alarcón, El Corregidor y la Molinera, and the traditional Tablao Flamenco. The Spanish ballet in the ballet russe repertoire while halfway between the Russian model and the Spanish avant-garde ballet, a blend of Spanish work, Falla's music, Picasso and Serge's design, Felix Fernandez's dance steps, and the ballet russe's usual commissions, choreography and performance. However, certain voices in Spain began to clamor for an original, authentically Spanish modern ballet company. Finally, in 1925, the Spanish dancer decided to present a ballet that borrowed Diaghilev's Parisian formula but featured music, designs and choreography that was exclusively Spanish, El Amor Brujo by Antonia Merce, La Argentina. This ballet, composed by Falla, had premiered in Madrid ten years earlier with set designs by Nestor de la Torre, which contained few of the avant-garde elements that Spanish audiences would see in Diaghilev tours. However, Mercedes Amor Brujo had a design by Gustavo Bacarizas in line with the Art Deco style then being showcased at the International Exhibition in Paris. The show's tremendous success gave La Argentina the boost she needed to create her own company in 1927 called Le Ballet Español, which finally succeeded in adapting Diaghilev's formula to the Spanish context. This was confirmed in another significant text by Cipriano Rivas Cherif which was printed in the programs of the Parisian theatres where the company performed, where he explained how La Argentina's company had fulfilled the wishes he expressed back in 1916. Quote, La Argentina wanted to bring together, united under the characteristic sign of the dance, composers and painters driven by the shared desire to create with rhythm and colour a quintessentially Spanish style. As a result, other artists copied the same formula and adapted it to the Spanish avant-garde scene and the tastes of Spanish audiences. The group that best exemplified this phenomenon was undoubtedly the Compañía de Bailes Españoles, the Spanish Dance Company, created by Encarnación López, la Argentinita, with the collaboration of the poet Federico García Lorca and the bullfighter and playwright Ignacio Sánchez Mejías, this company presented a perfect combination of Spanish folklore and cutting-edge avant-garde trends. For an example of this particular style, we can take a closer look at the Cuckold's Fair, a repertoire piece whose significance for this company was equivalent to that of the Rite of Spring for the Ballet Russes. This ballet had been written by Lorca and Cipriano Rivas Cherif in 1927, inspired by a popular comical tale of the pilgrimage to venerate the Christ of Monclin. The score was composed by Gustavo Pitaluga, one of Falla's disciples in the circle of the Residencia de Estudiantes. The ballet was commissioned by Antonia Mercela Argentina, although she ended up performing fragments of the work rather than a full-length production. In 1930, the score was played by the Chamber Orchestra of Madrid. Finally, the complete ballet was performed on stage, on stage under the direction of La Argentinita and her Compañía de Bailes Españoles. It premiered in 1933 with a set designed by the surrealist painter Adolfo, sorry, Alberto Sánchez, who depicted the fields of Castile using a radical language informed by the style of the Vallecas school. The costumes were traditional folk garments worn in rural areas. In my opinion, the Cacos Fair can be seen as the Spanish equivalent of the formula used in the Rite of Spring, Although Stravinsky's score is unquestionably one of the most impressive compositions in contemporary music, far superior to Pitaluga's work, these artists, poets and dancers linked ballet with the brilliant avant-garde of the 30s, while simultaneously reviving dances, melodies and traditions rooted in Spanish culture. In summary, Diaghilev's original version of the Rite of Spring was never performed in Spain probably because it was deemed too risky to show the ballet russe's most innovative works to Spanish audiences, who at the time were not accustomed to such radically modern forms of entertainment. Nevertheless, the formula used in the right, which mixed Russian folklore and traditions with avant-garde aesthetics, did make its way to Spain and was transposed, adapted and applied to the imminent development of modern Spanish ballet. The various tours that the Ballet Russes completed between 1916 and 1927 
paved the way for a favorable reception of the contributions of Stravinsky, Rerich, Nijinsky and Messine, which also interacted with the novelties introduced by Spanish artists and intellectuals. Some of the Spanish ballets in Diaghilev's repertoire were the product of this exchange. In addition, the Spanish adaptation of the Russian model was exemplified by companies founded in the late 20s and early 30s, particularly the Ballet Español, led by La Argentina, and the Compañía de Bailes Españoles of La Argentinita. this session where uh, time for questions and some discussions and as we did last time if the four the speakers would like to uh, come up and the sporting costume and femininity and androgyny and how all of that works out, how all of that is being explored. One of the interesting parallels in another world that I've been researching on in the last year or two has been to do with actual women's tennis in France during this period, which is fascinating. And both in terms of preceding the First World War and immediately afterwards. Preceding, you have a big star, I don't know, Margot Bopedi, who is represented on the cover of Feminine mm. Magazine, for example. And of course, after, from 1919 onwards, you have Suzanne Omblon, who is yeah. notorious in this in terms of changing ideas of costume and, and the exposure of the body in a sporting context. There is also such a big rise, there's a, 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 a you may know all of this, so apologies if I'm repeating it but there's a woman by the name of Alice Miller, who's incredibly influential in developing women's sport at this time. And one of the big debates that comes around with that is that she moves women's sport away from the genteel sports of tennis and golf, which women are allowed to participate into athletics, in athletic costumes in the early 20s. So I'm, I'm slightly wondering, I suppose, to what extent bringing in that wider context of the rise of women's actual sporting practice at this time might be useful in informing an analysis of those, both the costume changes and the choreographic changes in terms of jeu, both pre-war and even post-war. Well, I know that Nijinsky did actually, he did actually go and see some tennis matches, mm -hmm. and so the idea of the movement, mm -hmm. the tennis movement, was something that actually really inspired him, and he found it very beautiful. But I think his impression, he mixes it up with a lot of other sports, because he yeah. sort of, he just takes an impression and then just swings with it, rather than <laughs> going, right, I need to make an accurate mm -hmm. rendition of tennis movement. But I think it's interesting, sort of, um, what you're saying, because I think the aesthetics, oh, you know, anyway, in the early 20s, it was more about looking graceful while you were playing sport still. I mean, definitely have the exercise, but it wasn't so much to win, but to sort of hold the racket gracefully and to integrate graceful movements with the arm and the wrist. And, you know, Suzanne Longman actually is quoted saying, oh, um, yes, it, I don't do it to win, I do it to look graceful when I don't play. Don't <laughs> <laughs> I think she was trying to kind of cover up really why she was doing it. And, of course, um, she, there are pictures of her um, in spreads and magazines, and it is very balletic in it because you have this sort of shift of balance of weight, and she's, you know, on the other side you may have Pavlova or something, and of course the white costume, again, and this idea of a skirt that's quite fluid is also very, um, I wouldn't say etherealized, but um, it gives the body a sort of sense of idealization. Mm -hmm. 
Yes, yeah, so I think it is definitely useful. And had I had more time, I would have liked to have gone into more about the women who were playing sport and some of those women that I showed in um, the 1913 images, because I think Bax did observe that, but then he sort of pushed it a bit further mm. in his idea for costume design. And the same with Nijinsky, basically. You know, they had these feelers out there, but then ultimately they would take it as inspiration do what they wanted rather than be very liberal, um, sort of literal with it. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Um, this is another question for Katarina. Um, I was wondering if you know anything about the um, about Nijinsky's um, kind of self-image and how if that interacts in any way with the self-image he puts on other people. Well, yes, I think that. Nijinsky, um, sort of, he very much, he was an absolutely wonderful, very technically capable, but also had this stage quality, and he was able to jump very high, so he knew that he was, so he, he had been trained as a classical dancer, and he knew that he could push it even further with his technique. But at the same time, I think he viewed his body and his sister, from, from what I've read you know, from his writings and his sister's writings about this, um, he viewed himself, his body as sort of an experimental canvas and he wanted to push it further to see what he could do with it. Um, and it's interesting because both Nijinsky and Nijinska, in many ways, are not particularly concerned with looking beautiful or pretty in many ways. And I think it's almost more remarkable on Nijinska's part because, you know, most female dancers, like for instance, Karsavina in that example that I, um, I sort of mentioned, uh, were very concerned with how they appeared and with this, having this external composed appearance. Whereas I think Nijinsky and his sister both wanted something that was more true theatrically and something more experimental. So, um, as far as I know, that's how I think he views his own body. Thank you. No, I, was just, I was just going to say, I, is this right that um, I think Rombeck talked about uh, Nijinsky as having a personality that was, ne was not at all the personality, that his personality on stage was not at all the personality you would see mm -hmm. when you met him outside. And that, I thought that um, that really buys into what you were saying about the, you know, the puppet-like, unemotional depersonalization mm. of movement that, that, I don't know, there seems to be this interest in impersonality in, in the movement. I wonder if it comes from Dumejo, uh, perhaps? And yes, I mean, that is something that you're just saying. My was saying, you need to yeah. view your body to his actors, you need to view yeah. your body as an instrument, play your role yeah. as a musician plays his instrument. Mm. Don't put project emotion into it's it. Subjective emotion. Yes, yeah. and Edward Gordon Craig yeah. uh, as well, yeah. around okay. the same yeah. time, had this notion of an uber marionette. Have we in how this is the last question? We're asking Without any conversation about ethnography and anthropology and my profound ignorance of anything south of Paris, I wonder to what extent does the richness of that north-south Catalonian versus Castilian Spanish reference pertain to the the different um, Argentina uh, performances? Now, is there a a presence of that richness, but also that tension in the choice of the ethnographic reference there. I think that uh, from the, the first decades of the 20th century, uh, not only the dancers, but only the, uh, also the researchers uh, began to, um, to, to study all the different uh, dances, melodies, traditions, the folklore, uh, which in Spain is very, very rich, not only North and South, but every single region has its mm. own um, idiosyncrasy. I don't know. So that um, that was uh, an interest for all the researchers who uh, tried to uh, record and, and note uh, every single um, dance and uh, tradition that they they found. So that was a. a enormous um, uh, universe for uh, inspiration for the dancers. So Argentina and Argentinita, but also other dance dancers, try to, um, to, to choreography new pieces, taking this as space. Mm -hmm. 
and uh, they tried to show it uh, abroad, like uh, because that was su supposedly that was what uh, the Spanish dance should be. So that uh, that those uh, decades where uh, the, the the Spanish stereotype was being uh, built and, and defined. So that was also, I think, um, the base for this uh, formula, which used also uh, these traditions mixed with the avant-garde uh, forms. So I think that um, all this tension and this uh, this different uh, this variety this, uh, uh, was also um, uh, a good point for, for creating new new modern Spanish ballet at the time. I don't know if I can no, answer. No. Can I have one follow-on? <laughs> <laughs> Which also is sort of wonderfully moving from my feeling of, of once having been in a flamenco performance in a cave was this extraordinary uh, strident polarization of sexuality and thereby almost a, an hermaphrodism by that. And I wondered how that might then play in within your sort of uh, white uh, blankness of, of femininity. To what extent does that have a dialogue in the relationship between, as it were, Spain as ancient original country and then sort of adopted Spanishness of the New World? As uh, no, uh, to what extent do those dance traditions cross the Atlantic? I wonder. Well, I don't know which of you that's for. Really. <laughs> no, but, no, I'm just. I'm just saying. Actually. All I can think of to, to answer that question is that a friend of mine who is an anthropologist of um, Pueblo Indian dances in Guatemala, um, I showed him a film of uh, Millicent Olsen's reconstruction of Rite of Spring, and he went, ah, it's the dance of the deer. And then he started, <laughs> you know, he started to do the steps, and I said, well, is that because they're doing part of us, you know, and maybe that came across from, you know, Spanish court dance, I don't know, or I mean, I, I have no idea, but there seems to be some transatlantic crossover, which is, at that period, seems to, um, to, have, to have spoken, certainly spoke to modernist writers like mm -hmm. Mike Lawrence, who would have seen, been viewing these dances, you know, mm -hmm. from a very privileged position of, you know, nobody was allowed in to see the Hopi snake, snake dance. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. But there were all of these dances, like all these different pueblos would have different dances. Of course. So that the corn dance. The corn dance. He talks about the corn dance. And, and, you know, and these were not finite dances. No. Mm. These went on for hours mm. and hours and hours, or indeed even days. So I, I'm not sure that one can really talk about European, uh, you know, um, American in the broader sense. Real crossovers, I mean, you know, for that particular group of dances, because that's not even a, uh, it's not even in some parts of Mexico where there are dances that clearly have antecedents and where there was a great deal of syncrasy taking place very, very um, early on in the colonial period. But these were. But they're very fluid, aren't they? I mean, they are, I agree. Yeah. yeah. They were isolated for so long. Mm. They were living on this complete isolation mm. from, from the pueblos. Mm. And it pr it's prompted in part by this principle of the, the as it were, degendered marionette. And mm. yet that degendering is terribly mm. sexualizing at the same time. Yeah. And thereby it becomes this constant push and pull between the primitive, authentic, again, little scare yeah, quotes all around. I think that's but also then the flip side of that, the, the sort of voyeuristic European infusing that with these sexualized narratives so that this is kind of constant reversal of spectator and performer that never, and it's the great, there's no anthropology as long as you've got an anthropologist in the tent. <laughs> <laughs> it is part of the wondering these are playing Yeah, that's right. That's yeah. Like, um, like Roger Fry in, in, you know, African art and talking about African art and, um, and visual art and design, where he's, he's saying that, you know, that the, the African, the art, of the art of Africa is far superior to, to Western art, except they there's nobody to judge it. Mm -hmm. And it's that, that kind of judgment of taste, I think, uh, that gets um, pushed into the equation, mm -hmm. you know, that, that decides on whether something is gendered or 
I don't, I don't know. I haven't really fully thought that through. But, it, I, but this is the first reading of the play, as Randall Barker was saying. Yeah. <laughs> this is yeah. 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 Just a brief one for Claire. I so enjoyed your, your paper. I'm very anxious. The horror starts in the and everything's Did that production tour, or was it only there? Manchester Lionel McCarthy's Misfortune. Uh, Manchester <laughs> Nev with the Outbreak of War, they're touring in New York. It's performed at Dallas <coughs> Theatre in 15. And they have a quite long tour. And it's on that that he meets the American heiress. And McCarthy and the company kind of disband and go back to Britain. And Randall Barker never performs again. Um, the, the wonderful prefaces that enrich the thoughts today are all written from his kind of villa in a cube kind of thing. He, he withdraws from, not, I mean, he, he steps back from acting towards producing, from producing then to being very much, as it were, the, the actor manager critic instead with the prefaces in the 20s. Um, so there's a, I, I think he has a huge role to play in the British foundation of the National Theatre. He's the sort of pivot of that debate. Mm. I think in the interval period, is he not? But the, the sort of um, stage presence, in a way the Savoy is the end of that mm. for him. Um, but the productions do talk wonderfully. Um, in my former alma mater, UC Berkeley, in the group theatre, in places like this, there's a wonderfully rich number of now, all great American universities of this period build Greek theatres in which to perform both antique and modern things. So a lot of the Savoy productions, again, don't need the scenery. They use an ancient space rebuilt to perform the plays in. So, um, but the, the company, as I said, disbands in the context of the First World War. I should be offended by we're a sustainable uh, college, and that, that's when all the cool air is being brought in from outside. So I apologize for the rising of machinery on and off the stage that you've had all through the morning. I'm also going to remove this rotating yes. thing from yes. behind your head. Which is just, just to follow up on what you said about <coughs> then going to Antibes in the yeah. 20s, in that period, any evidence that he knew the Picasso circle and oh, there, or yes. else went to see uh, the, the ballet was performed in Monte Carlo, and so thereby was still engaging with the, the, the design. Was he in the Gerald Murphy circle? I have plucked on Tiva out of the air. I can't I remember which elegant Cote d'Azur villa it is. But I think there's uh, uh, part of the, my sort of hesitancy about proposing the paper was, in a way, it, it is a what was our phrase from, from this morning from Alexander the Zeitgeist, the, the sort of context of uh, creative conversation. Uh, but my sense is actually that maybe this befalls us all as performers. We become more and more shy and reticent the older we become. That I think that engagement with the, the, the world of performance is very much in correspondence and on the page. Mm -hmm. My sense is not of a great social mixing. Mm -hmm. But that may be my ignorance, I must admit. With the pressures of time, I didn't go much past that. <laughs> 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 so I made a misdirected you there, and apologies to anyone who heard it talk in the room for that. Um, in fact, it was uh, 
It was not until 1964 that the ride was performed as a ballet in Spain. And um, I haven't studied that in depth and the reception yeah. of Stravinsky in, during the Francoism. Mm -hmm. uh, but uh, all the, the people, the musicians, composers, and uh, intellectuals that I have uh, quoted here and worked in those circles mm -hmm. of the Residencia de Estudiantes and the avant-garde uh, atmosphere were all in exile. So um, I don't. I I suppose that there were some good musicians, of course, uh, during the the forties, fifties, and I suppose they know Stravinsky's work. But uh, the reception, the the reception of avant-garde was uh, uh, very different during the the, the post-war period, and uh, all those uh, Stravinsky's contacts were uh, in exile. Fallas, Falla. Uh, Salazar, uh, Jesús Valera, all were, uh, were in America and uh, Mexico, Argentina, and the mm -hmm. States. So um, I don't really know. That would be very interesting to know how uh, the, the other, the people who stayed uh, inside Spain, mm -hmm. uh, re uh, received all those uh, influences. Yeah. Mm -hmm. so, um, um, this comes back to Katarina's um, paper and the point about impersonality and puppets and a different withdrawal of personality in the performance. And you mentioned, I think you quoted somebody talking about as musicians, they put emotion into their playing. I just wanted to observe that it's interesting, fascinating to me to see pre-war and 1920s linked in the way you do, but there is also a real classical turn in the arts in general in the 20s, which, which links up with that. Yes. Um, a move back to, to Bach, um, a way of playing Bach, which is much more, more brittle, much much more cold, um, as indeed Stravinsky's own turn to neoclassicism in the 1920s after. Yes, a turn to simplicity. And, yeah, um, yeah. But, but it's interesting to hear this complexity because they were there were links back to pre-war, but at the same time there was there was a um, a sympathetic turn in the arts towards classicism and conservatism. Yes, and it's interesting because I'm trained as a literature person. This is my first um, degree, and um, what something that I came across a lot in my in my sort of study of modernist literature is this tension between a univocal and a poly vocal sort of thing. So univocal is sort of the extreme is Ezra Pound and the other extreme is Joyce where you have all these different intersecting voices and I think you've got these two currents at work in modernism and there's these sort of tensions that play out but definitely I do understand that there is a move towards greater simplicity um, with people like Stravinsky and I think especially with Russian emigres as well um, because when they leave behind, they, a little bit of a simplistic reading, when they leave behind St. Petersburg and its classical institutions, there is a move to want to recapture that when they immigrate, and a little bit of a suspicion of maybe this more sort of jarring, sort of, um, for lack of a better word, sort of hodgepodge um, of influences. So I think there's definitely an argument um, to suggest that classicism is returning in the early 20s, and of course you have it with revival of productions like The Sleeping Princess in 1921. But to think that Eliot is working on Graceland yes. throughout this very, very long period, mm -hmm. and one can almost see the kind of containment of emotion exactly as one can sense it sometimes in Cubism, a kind of containment mm -hmm. of emotion, a hardening perhaps of emotion, mm -hmm. which in some respects is a little bit like this, a certain type of modernism, this more classically minded modernism mm -hmm. that you're talking about, a uh, return to order modernism, 
that one can perhaps find its origins before the war. Absolutely, I think Pound certainly. Yes. Yes. When I'm struck by your beautiful point about that posture with the hands, that is there not a way in which that is both depersonalizing and the ultimate intensification of spectatorial scrutiny on that one disrupted part of the body being drawn attention to in that way? And again, that sort of bifocal cubist effect, both the most attentive and the most disrupted at the same time. Mm. Yeah. And I was just thinking about what uh, religion skills said about the uh, how the hands had to be held mm -hmm. with, a, with a space, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. in their not but a sort of still point of turning world there in there. I mean, would you be able to see that from the front? But it makes a difference to the pose on the stage. You know, it, it's not that it's being um, histrionically given out to the audience, but it's retained in the in the pose. Yes, it's always this micromanagement that yeah, 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 but yeah, because yeah. I mean I think while that's in a way it's almost in terms of how much the body is controlled and managed, it's more of a return to the classical than say Joaquin was, because Joaquin there was room for improvisation, even though he claimed um, in his memoirs that people improvised more and they did because the roles almost lent themselves to them because he he conveyed he created roles based on sort of a more naturalistic approach and so he wanted somebody who was playing, for instance, I don't know, a classical nymph to move as though like a classical nymph, but if she was an idealist to change it. And so that lent itself more towards improvisation and somebody like Kasavina was more used to that. Um, whereas what Nijinsky was trying to do was trying to literally control everything and he didn't um, he would demonstrate and then he'd ask people to perform it there and then. He didn't explain very much and he wanted it done exactly as he'd done it. Um, whereas, you know, maybe later photographers <coughs> like Balanchine, if someone made a mistake but it was more interesting than what he originally conceived, he'd work with that and he'd work with the dancers. So I think that is very depersonalizing in a way because it's viewing the dancers as instruments. No, you do that. And um, he did that in a very sort of obvious way. I mean, all choreographers do it, but I think Nijinsky especially. I think chairs control everything. Uh, <laughs> 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 we're already a few minutes after uh, the half hour when we're to have a cup of tea. Uh, but let me thank our four speakers of, of this first session this afternoon, Nidoya, Katrina, Sue, and Claire, for a really special Voilà. <laughs> 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 
commence avec celle-ci. Ah, c'est le Ensuite, celle-ci. Ah, oui, Yeah, exactly. Okay. So, oh, yes, please. <laughs> 